0: Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky, where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being so if this is your first time listening to the podcast a very warm welcome. And if you are a regular listener, then thank you. I am so aware of how many amazing podcasts are out there and how time poor we all are. So that you choose to listen to the Motherkind podcast makes me very happy and I am endlessly grateful. So thank you. My mission with this podcast is to inspire you to reconnect back to yourself, whatever that might look like for you. Perhaps it's reconnecting with your health and self-care. Maybe it's looking at your career and your relationships or maybe how you talk to yourself and finally looking at being kinder to yourself. So I talk to therapists, doctors, naturopaths, coaches career experts and everything in between to help you become your happiest healthiest and most alive version of you because that is what I think is the most inspiring thing to become for our children this week I am really excited because one of my favorite brands is currently supporting the podcast so Jessie my three-year-old has really sensitive skin so when she was little, I trawled through all the brands to find the softest and kindest organic fabrics. And I found it in Mori. And she has worn her Maury PJs pretty much every night since. So if you don't know about Mori, then I really encourage you to go and have a look at the website or their beautiful Instagram they are famous for their snuggly sleep suits and pjs but they also do clothing all from newborn to four years and what i love even more about maury is what a conscious brand they are so they run the kindness project where they will package and donate your old maury clothes to a family in need and in return give you credit to spend on new clothes on the site. How amazing is that? And for my lovely listeners, there's an exclusive offer to get £15 off orders over 50. So that's £50 worth of soft, organic and kind on the skin clothes for just £35. And I can vouch that they wash brilliantly and will last forever as hand-me-downs. So just head to babymori.com, that's babymori.com, and enter 15OFF50, that's 15OFF50 at the checkout to get your softest Mori essentials. And now on to this week's episode. So have you ever wondered why some people seem to get ill all the time and other people just don't seem to be that affected by those nasty colds and flu viruses that seem to always be flying around, or they certainly are in our house? So this week I am having an absolutely fascinating conversation with Dr. Jenna Machocki, who is a doctor of immunology. So she is an absolute expert in our immune systems, in why we get ill and how to stay well. And Jenna is a doctor of 20 years experience in her field. But what I really, really loved about her was that she made all of her knowledge really accessible. And she talks us through in this interview her four pillars, of what can help us stay well and those are movement stress nutrition and rest so i i don't know about you but when Jessie gets ill i can sort of handle it because i can keep going and i can you know work when she's napping or having some chill time but when i get ill everything seems to stop I also have to, like loads of you, keep looking after Jessie when I'm ill and that is really, really tough. So I was absolutely fascinated to hear about what I can do and what we can do to help ourselves stay well more of the time. So Jenna and I chat about how she came into this field, what spurred her on to make this her specialism.
1: Always been interested in the human body and health and disease as a child. I've always had this of curiosity about it and understanding the immune system just seemed to be like the blueprint for our health that was defining everything about health and disease.
0: She is also a mum of twins, so we talk about that and how that has shaped what she is really passionate about and interested in today. We talk through the four pillars that I just mentioned of movement, stress, nutrition
1: and rest. It's recognizing that stress has this measurable effect on our immune system. So instead of searching for the magic bullet of nutrition that's going to make you feel great and drinking your celery juice or whatever it is, but let's find really very real ways to manage our stress. And she gives us some really, really helpful tips and some
0: mind-blowing stats that I just couldn't believe that will help you and give you loads of food for thought on how to stay well more of the time. So here is the episode. I hope you really enjoy it. If you did, then as always, please do pop over to iTunes and leave a review preferably five stars, and hop onto Instagram. I really do love carrying on the chat on the comments on Instagram. So if you want to share how you felt the episode or what you might be doing to boost your immune system, then yeah, head over to Instagram, motherkind underscore Zoe. And I hope you enjoy the episode. So welcome Jenna to the podcast. I'm so excited to be chatting to you this morning. Thanks for having
1: me. I'm really happy to be here on your podcast and, yeah, have an interesting discussion, I think.
0: Yeah, well, I've been devouring your content over the past <laughs> couple of days in preparation for this and just absolutely loving your philosophy. So before we get into talking about your passion and your mission, can you just tell mm-hmm. everyone if they haven't come across you, what it is that you do?
1: yeah so i am an immunologist and it seems that there's not too many of us around because people are always quite kind of intrigued by what that means and it basically means i spend my time trying to understand everything about our immune system and that's something i've done i kind of fell into about by- Almost 20 years ago now, and just thought, this is it. This is what I want to do. This is what makes sense. Always been interested in the human body and health and disease as a child. And I've always had this kind of curiosity about it. And understanding the immune system just seemed to be like the blueprint for our health. It was defining everything about health and disease. I think it, you'd struggle to find a condition that didn't have some part of the immune system involved in it. And that's everything from both physical health to mental health. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's much more than fending off those you know, seasonal colds and flus, which is what people tend to think of when they think of their immune system. But it's how our body heals and repairs. It's actually intimately involved in the process of becoming pregnant it regulates things like our metabolism and our body weight and it's actually the main way that our body searches out for potential cancer cells so it's even our main cancer surveillance.
0: Fascinating. Everything in me just massively wants to geek out with you right now. I'm going, to try and, I'm going to try and not do that too much, but I do want to know the answer to this. So when we talk about our immune system, yeah, what is that system? Is that cellular? How are the different parts of our body constructed to make this system of immunity? Because I've been thinking yeah. about this a bit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is a great question. And we'll try not to, like you say, go too hard on the geeky science But it's a great question because people always talk about their immune system as being one thing. And they kind of refer to it like an on-off switch. You know, you need to boost it, turn it on, turn it up. But it's not just one thing, as you alluded to in your kind of own research that you've been doing. It's a whole constellation of different types of cells, and they're all over your body. They're in every corner an inch of your body and your blood. So it's mostly the white blood cells that we think about, but they line all of our tissues and organs where we might see an infection. So you think about the lungs or the digestive tract, even the skin, the urinary tract, they're everywhere because we could be infected by something that wants to get inside our body, any part of the body. So they're everywhere to try and cover all bases. And they move around our body, both in the blood, but also in our lymphatic system. So this is like a huge network of vessels, a bit like the circulatory system that allows them to move around. And they are also congregated in specific organs. So the lymph nodes. So if you ever have a sore throat and your neck, you have the swelling, you can feel people will say, oh, my glands are up that's your lymph node swelling because the cells are proliferating, they're making an army to go and fight the infection. And then you have other immune tissues like the spleen, the bone marrow, the thymus gland, there's various different aggregates of immune tissue all the way down the digestive tract. So it's really everywhere. And Quite often the analogy of an army is used, so it's like you switch on the army and they're off to fight infection, they go out to battle, and intrinsic within that army is always the peacekeepers. So as much as we talk about needing to boost our immune system to fight infection, actually most of the time we don't want to boost it, but we want to maintain the regulation. We want to keep those firefighters in check with the peacekeepers. So we have a big regulatory arm of our immune system, which is often overlooked, but I'd say arguably probably the most important part.
0: It's so, so fascinating. So I want to talk to you about autoimmune and those responses. But before we do, let's just maybe answer some questions, which I know people will be thinking of haven't heard that yes. description. Is it true that some people have good immune systems and some people have bad immune systems and what can we do as you say to keep that system in regulation and I know you talk about rest and stress and lifestyle factors so it'd be good to get straight into that holistic discussion straight away.
1: Yeah so although I'm like a a classically Trained immunologist, and uh, I come from an evidence base and practice science in the conventional way. My personal interest has always weaved into my professional career. And as you pointed out, I, I'm really intrigued by the more alternative, the more holistic, and how this actually is involved in our immunity. But it's often overlooked because no one's really funding the studies to look at things like stress management and immunity. So I'm trying to bring that information to the surface and unpick the sort of evidence because a lot of the evidence is there. It's maybe just not so apparent. So your first question was, do people have a better immune system than others? Yeah. So this is the real interesting thing because... Within your immunity, it's actually what makes us so unique. So even with identical twins, their immune systems will be different because of the way, without getting too complicated, the way the genes recombine and give you all the different receptors on our immune cells, it makes us all very different. And there's a fundamental reason for that, because if we were all the same and some horrible virus came along, we'd die out as a species, So we all have a natural variation in how we respond to different infections. So some people might be much more susceptible to respiratory viruses, whereas other people might be more susceptible to bacterial infections of the gut. There's kind of this diversity among us. And I would say that there's no actual hierarchy. You might have some things that you're more or less susceptible to, but you'll benefit in another way from someone else by being more resistant to something different. And an example I'd use is the autoimmune disease ankylosing spondylitis is a really horrible autoimmune disease. But people who have that tend to have a particular genetic fingerprint that makes them quite resistant to HIV infection. So it's kind of like the luck of the draw of what hands nature deals you you might be particularly resistant to some things but not others and I'd really argue that when we think of diversity as a whole it's not how we look or how we behave that make us different but it's really our immune system and I don't think there's a hierarchy within that.
0: Wow that's absolutely fascinating really interesting and yet a lot of the treatments out there aren't they are, yeah. are quite they're the same for everyone.
1: Yes, exactly. And I think it would be amazing if we had a situation where we could personalize treatment to everyone. But I think we're not there yet. It might be something that comes in the future. But we probably would have a lot more success in treating people if we were able to drill down a little bit into how they are as a person and their sort of genetic makeup and all those factors sort of linked together.
0: That's really, really interesting. So on to the second part of my question then, which is about what can someone do? And I think this will really make up the bulk of our
1: conversation
0: yes. because the mum's listening. You know, you're a mum, aren't you? A four-year-old yes. a twin. So it's just getting ill is such a pain. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So, it's you know, for us and when, the children, and when the children are ill, I think, you know, the impact on my life is pretty similar yes. if Jessie's ill or if I'm ill, everything yeah. stops. So, I'm really, really excited to have a chat with you about what we can do to you know, regulate that immune system, to make ourselves the healthiest versions yes. that we can, as you say, within that genetic makeup that we've been
1: getting. Yeah, I definitely agree that it's really stressful when your kids get sick. So as you mentioned, I have four-year-old twins and my husband travels a lot and commutes a lot for his job so I'm sort of the one that works near home and near the nursery and does all the drop-offs and everything and juggles the childcare. and so inevitably I'm the one that gets the call if they're sick and I have to drop everything and then go and get them or take time off work to take care of them when they're sick and it's really stressful because modern life is hard you know like things about certain jobs can't wait and I have no family close by. It's, it's always a struggle to juggle that and I think this is an aspect of modern life that I think about all the time with respect to the science that I'm looking into because modern life doesn't always allow us to do what we need to do to get well or to take care of ourselves. It's perfectly normal to get sick every year with colds and flus and upset tummies. We live in this world that's full of different microbes and we've evolved with them. They're constantly trying to infect us and we're constantly trying to keep them out. So there's this dynamic all the time. And every now and again, you're gonna, you know, succumb to the latest allergy that's going around. And this is normal. I think when it becomes more frequent than normal, particularly in adults, then it's time to start looking at the bigger picture and seeing what things you can do. A lot of people ask me about boosting your immune system or I don't really like that term, but I know what people mean, like finding a way to keep your immune defenses as sharp as possible to prevent getting sick or get you back on your feet as quick as possible. And I guess I would say it's maybe not what people think. So often people turn to multivitamins or vitamin C echinacea, all these things. And there's actually very little evidence that they do any good. Certainly, none of these make you invincible to getting sick in the first place. They might help you on your way to recovery. But I'd argue that nutrition is only one leg of the chair, if you like. So you might be nailing your nutrition, you're eating the best diet, you know, hitting all your recommended daily allowance of everything that you need, but you're really stressed out you're not sleeping enough, you're either over-exercising or under-exercising, and then it doesn't really matter what you're eating because all these other things have such a huge impact on our immune system too. So I think it's trying to get your head around the fact that we shouldn't be stressing so much about what we're eating, making the effort to most of the time eat sensibly, but also try and have a sensible approach to the other areas of our life most of the time so it's easier said than done and I know yeah. that so what, are, what are
0: the other legs of the chair so nutrition sleep, yeah so nutrition's stress.
1: one sleep stress and movement
0: okay can you so tell us a bit about each of those and maybe weave
1: in some of your own personal experience for us I'd start with movements because I don't even like to use the term exercise because <laughs> I, I really enjoy exercise I've always been really active and in fact, after I went on maternity leave, I had a big crisis and thought, I can't go back to work. No one's ever going to take me seriously. And I retrained as a fitness instructor. Did you? Um, yeah. I was living in Switzerland at the time and I worked for a Dutch company that worked with doctors and physios to help pre- and postnatal women to maintain like a level of fitness during their pregnancy and how to recover properly after pregnancy it was unreal to be involved with that organization gave me a whole new perspective of how to take care of my body after having the twins and then I moved back to the UK and then I have these friends who were five years after giving birth and then admitted to me that they were leaking urine when they like ran for the bus and I was like this is not normal you know you shouldn't be in this situation. But I think that just points to the difference in the approach to postnatal care in different countries. And I think in the UK, perhaps we're really lagging behind. Totally going off on a tangent of what I meant to say here. But- no,
0: no, no. It's, it's, this is all very mother kind topics. These are <laughs> so, so good.
1: But the so point good. I was getting to is that I love exercise it clears my head, makes me feel good. It makes me feel energized. And I sort of feel like now, like as I'm hurtling towards 40, I should have, you know, that nice gym membership to the gym where they give you fluffy towels and complimentary water and all that stuff. But I'd never have the time to use it. So I don't have a gym membership. (laughs) And instead, you know, I just have to weave movement into my daily life. How do you do that? I have built up to being able to cycle to work, rain, wind or shine. So it's about four and a bit miles from my house. So I drop the kids off and then hop on my bike and cycle to work. And that gets me out in the fresh air and I don't have my phone on me. And I'm just can't think about anything really, but being safe on the road and, and whatnot. And that wasn't an overnight process. I had to kind of get my confidence up, you know, get certain gear in place so that I could cycle when it was raining, cycle when it's really hot. But it gets my movement in. Also, just getting down and playing with the kids. Sometimes I really don't want to because I'm tired and I'd rather just flop on the sofa. But moving around, making things like housework into a bit of a workout, putting on a really good podcast and just, you know, hammering through all the laundry and putting stuff away and tidying up the toys and just feeling like I'm moving all the time. And because of the way I described how the immune cells move around our body using the lymphatics, the lymphatics doesn't have the pump of the heart to move the fluid around. So our blood system, we use the heart to pump the blood around, but the lymphatics relies on movement. It relies on our our skeletal muscles to squeeze the lymph around. That's why things like massage is really good for, you know, lymphatic drainage, getting things moving around. So we need to keep moving. The other thing that movement does for the immune system is we have this gland in our neck called the thymus gland. And yeah. this is producing what we call T cells. So these are sort of the master controllers of our immune system. And actually, from when we turn 20, our thymus gland starts to shrink, and it's called thymic involution, and it produces less and less of these T-cells over time. And less new T-cells means that the ones we have in our body are the ones that are getting a bit old, and when they're a bit old, they're more likely to go wrong. So you want to be clearing out the old and keep producing the new to keep a nice, healthy balance of T-cells in the body. Because if we have some old T-cells that are going to go wrong, we're more likely to get things like autoimmune disease. So by getting movement into your body, muscles produce certain molecules that work on the thymus gland to stop it shrinking. And they've actually done studies looking at sedentary 20-somethings and compared them to a group of cyclists in London who were in their 70s. And they found that their thymus gland was much more active in the 70-year-old cyclists than the sedentary 20-somethings. So it's really like maintaining muscle mass and keeping your muscles moving. You know, I'm not talking about pumping iron in the gym, but just knowing that that's really involved in the health and the sort of youth of your immune system and how that will help the bigger picture of not only how you fight infections, but also things like stopping autoimmune diseases Mm
0: -hmm. fascinating and that links into the next one isn't it around sleep and tiredness because I know for me I'm like you I don't do formal exercise I don't go to a gym class I do try and run a bit and I do yoga and I I dance around the house with Jessie (laughs)
1: yes
0: (laughs) that's my main form of exercise Um, it's
1: funny I love the fact that having children means that You always have someone to just dance around the kitchen with. It's great. great.
0: (laughs) I did used to do it before I was a mum too, but it was slightly less socially acceptable then.
1: Yeah, Um, I'd probably (laughs) have a bottle of wine open as well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But when I'm tired, as you said... I don't want to do that. So yeah. how does tiredness, and I guess there's the two sides of it, what does rest give us and how can we get better sleep? And what can we do when we are feeling tired? Do you feel more energized again? So two sort of sides of it yeah. I'd love to hear about.
1: Yeah, sleep is amazing. I mean, sleep is really – I've come to the conclusion from all of the research that I've been involved in and everything that I've been looking at around diet and lifestyle that actually sleep just trumps all of it. But that's not really helpful when you have young children. (laughs) But saying that if you have a few bad nights sleep, your level of these special cells that are involved in detecting viruses – called natural killer cells, they really plummet. So when you're sleeping, it's a real time for your body to restore these cells, keep the numbers and the whole population healthy, make sure that they're getting to the right places in your body. So respiratory infections are things we often get in our airways and our lungs, like the seasonal colds and flus. So we really need sleep to fend off these kind of viruses. So you probably notice if you have yourself experienced a few days of poor sleep, you're much more likely, you have that rundown feeling, you're much more likely to pick up whatever viruses are going around. So the sleeping is a real restorative part for the immune system. It also helps with healing. So I mentioned earlier that the immune system is actually what helps healing. So if you have a cut or a wound or you've had some surgery when we're sleeping, Everything else is kind of switched off. So it's a kind of triaging of energy. You know, your body can't be doing all things at all times. So it kind of divides things up for sleep. We're going to be more resolving and healing. And then during the daytime, we're more likely to be out and about encountering infections. So we need to heighten those kind of defences instead. So there's a real dichotomy in what's happening between waking and sleeping. And actually, what's controlling a lot of that is our circadian rhythm. Mm. So this is becoming more and more a theme that perhaps yourself or some of the listeners have heard of. And it's kind of based on this idea of, you know, we involved with these light and dark cycles. So the sun comes up in the morning, and then it goes down in the evening. And there's certain things you can and can't do when it's light and when it's dark. Before we had modern living with 24 hour light and warm houses and all the rest of it. We evolved with these light and dark cycles and seeing the sun every morning entrains the brain to reset the circadian rhythm. And that filters down to all our different organs, including the immune system and the digestive organs. So we kind of need that entrainment. When you do experiments and you keep people in dark for a very long time, their circadian rhythm kind of cycles out of balance. And about 80% of our immune system is under circadian control. So that means that the immune system has genes that respond to these light and dark cycles. And
0: Wow, can you say that again? 80% of our immune system is yes. under circadian control?
1: Yes, exactly. Wow. So
0: that's so interesting to me because, as you were describing, in modern life a lot of us just totally disregard that Yes. Yeah. It. Can you just explain what it is in case people are thinking, what are they talking yeah. about? What is rhythm?
1: <laughs> yeah. So when we see light from the sun, so first thing in the morning, there's a particular wavelength of light in the sun that hits certain cells in the back of our eyes, and this transmits a signal to our brain that it's daylight. It's a time of activity. It's a time of being alert, moving around, eating, doing various activities. And the brain then transmits this signal to the rest of the body. So it switches on our digestive system, switches on various other systems. We need to just be active during the day. And part of that is switching on certain parts of our immune system to make sure that in case we encounter some infection, we're all primed and ready.
0: Yeah.
1: And then when the sun goes down and the light exposure dims, Our eyes then pick up on that and these same cells transmit to the brain that, okay, the daytime is finished, the active time is finished, now it's resting time and sleep time. And that also helps to reduce cortisol in our body. And when cortisol is low, we can increase melatonin. So they're kind of in opposition to each other. So cortisol is kind of the wakeful stress hormone and melatonin is the hormone that we need to help us to sleep
0: fascinating so how does this play then two things I want to ask you with mums and you know what it's like who are in those early years you're up a lot in the pitch dark, yes. and you might be trying to sleep in the day so I'd love to talk about that and then I'd love to talk about technology and the impact that, that has on all this too yes. but if we could start by talking about So what can mums do? You know, Jessie's three. I don't know what your twins are like, but I'm still up in the night a bit. I'm still Um, up with twins. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I I hope hope you might say that. (laughs) Um, So what can we do then? Is there anything we can do to support our immune system whilst we are getting this broken, unnatural sleep in
1: some way? So interestingly, babies don't have this same circadian need that we have, they don't develop it. They develop it at different times, but it generally takes a few years before they really develop the strong circadian rhythm where they respond to the light and the dark cues like we do. I think we all know that intuitively. Yeah, (laughs) but interestingly, they have found that the oxytocin and a lot of these hormones that are produced by mothers when you have a baby help to take the edge off all of the more extreme ends of the sleep deprivation. So these hormones are kind of trying to counterbalance it a little bit. Wow. wow. And also actually napping. There are some studies that show that taking naps during the daytime can also offset for a broken sleep during the night because it's really getting those deep, deep phases of sleep. You know, when you have a real good unbroken night sleep, you go through different sleep phases. And some of those are really the deep, parts that's when the real recovery and restoration is happening it's also helping with our concentration and our memory when we wake up so that's normally the one that's suffering when we have children because we never get you know continuity of sleep so all those positive hormones that are produced do take the edge off and having naps and this is something I never did when my twins were really small I don't know why I was just so like uh, on red alert all the time when they slept during the day, I never went and took a nap. I don't know why. I was always, like, cleaning or tidying up or just, you know, taking five minutes to drink a cup of tea. And I think my advice to any new parents would be, like, sleep when they sleep because the other things can wait. And it does add up. It does help take the edge off those broken nights that you have. I think uh, it's
0: helpful as well because I think a lot of people would think, <coughs> You know, I'm being told to rest. And I think that sleep, when they sleep, things become a bit of a mantra, hasn't it? And a lot of people really struggle with that because the baby's gone to sleep and then you know, and I'm the same, at some points I thought, this is my time to get stuff done. Yeah. Um, whereas actually I think if I'd thought, well, if I can rest now, and Dr. Oscar Serral actually who I had on the podcast who talks yeah. about postnatal depletion, he talks about these 20-minute naps. And I think if I'd thought, well, if I do that, it's going to make me feel less likely to get ill, that would have been another reason actually. So I think that's really compelling, knowing yeah. actually yeah. taking those naps – can stop you getting ill because there's nothing worse than being ill. Yes, while you've got to look after babies or children of any age. So I think yes, I think exactly. that's maybe like another reason that we can put in our yeah, you know, why it's good to do this box. Is yes, it's that, is that nothing exactly is, can ha- stop you getting ill can play part of that immune puzzle, immunity yeah. puzzle.
1: And I think we have so much exposure to blue light now that it's almost going to be an additional barrier to getting good night's sleep. You know, when our kids do have a good night or when we do have like a nap during the day, because when you're staring at a screen, it's like staring at the sun. It's got the same wavelength of blue light that's triggering your brain that this is a wakeful time. So if your baby is going to have a nap and you're just staring at your phone, this is like, telling your brain, be awake, do stuff. And maybe if you just dimmed the room a little bit or just flicked through a book or, you know, something that's not digital, you might not get a proper nap in, but, you know, resting, listening to your breathing, taking that moment, just be aware of how you feel physically. I think that can be just really, really useful strategy to try and implement. And I have to say that it's something that I never did. And I, I think it's just because the whole like first two years of being a mum was like, a complete blur because <laughs> so I was living in a foreign country, my husband was gone a lot and I just felt really overwhelmed by <laughs> I'm responsible for these two little babies and uh, not knowing what was coming next really but I think for any new mums if there was any one piece of advice I think that would be a good one.
0: So what's your boundaries like around your phone use at night time?
1: So now I have an iPhone and there is this thing where you can put on night thing, night. Yeah, yeah. So I do tend to work in the evenings just because I cram things in around childcare. So my kind of cut off is nine o'clock to stop any kind of screen time. And then I put this night thing on my phone and I just don't look at it again. I actually do use the lights on my phone to read. And for the first couple of years after having children, I stopped reading books completely because I was just exhausted and I've slowly, slowly got into reading again. And even if it's like a page a night, it's just a good way to unwind. Or sometimes I just write a little kind of bedtime brain dump, you know, or writing thoughts from the day or detangling what's in my head. And I find this quite a good process. So normally from nine o'clock, I don't look at any screens. I'm not a big watcher of TV anyway. And then by 10, I'm probably asleep. But it's interesting because the effects of the screens on our brain and our circadian rhythm is actually much more concentrated in kids. So the effect that staring at that screen has on this whole mechanism that's telling our bodies to be awake is much stronger in children. So I think it's it's kind of interesting because, you know, when kids start going to school and they have really busy days and they're coming home and they might be using devices and just before bedtime, even if it's for stories and things, it could be affecting their sleep and affecting them getting into the real deep phases of sleep that's needed to. And is TV the same? TV tends to not be as strong because you don't tend to sit so close to it. Okay. But it might depend on the size and everything of your TV and how close you sit to it. Yeah,
0: because our routine with Jessie is, you know, TV, bath, bed. So I was just thinking, oh, hang on a minute. Maybe that's why she doesn't sleep till 9pm (laughs) most (laughs) nights. I mean, it could be worth
1: trying something different. That's a problem that I don't even know how to tackle. It's the use of devices with kids. It just feels like the older they get, the more challenging it gets to understand how to cultivate A healthy relationship with screens when I feel like screens are designed to make us want more you know they talk about the way the social media is it's designed to to suck you in so I don't really know how to have a healthy relationship or to cultivate a healthy relationship with something that's designed to make you want it more Um, and more
0: I think it's going to be the challenge of our time to be honest yes okay amazing so (laughs) we have talked about rest can we talk about stress Yes, stress is... is <laughs> not really... that any mums out there are stressed <laughs> at all. <laughs> I think, you know,
1: modern life is just stressful. So stressful, isn't but I it? I think about, like, my upbringing, I grew up in rural Scotland on a farm. There was different stresses, but not the same kind of relentless way things are today. And I think it only makes sense that the mind has a huge impact on our health because, you know, our immune system is... Trying to protect us from danger and damage and infection. And the only way it can do that is if what we're seeing around us is somehow communicated to our immune system. So that's why what the brain is doing is telling the immune system whether there's a threat or not. So it can tell us whether the immune system has to be ready for attack. But this is all designed to be short-term, so it's kind of the fight-or-flight response. So it's a huge burst in different neuropeptides that filter through all our body and say, right, there's something coming, we need to do something now, we need to act, we need to be ready. And it basically promotes your immune system to, to be ready for attack, it promotes it to be ready to restore and heal and gets everything in place. But then the threat doesn't come, or the threat does come, Whatever happens, it's short-term, it's resolved, and you move on. And that's kind of how we've evolved. And again, we can't seem to escape our evolution. This is how the system's put together. But sometimes the stress is not a short-term thing that's over. It's short-term, but it's intermittent. It's every day, all day. It's something's happened, something's broken, something's late. You know, there's always like little things, thinking about tomorrow, next week, something you've forgotten And these are all acute stressors that have exactly the same biochemical response as if you were about to be hit by a bus and you have to run for your life. It's the same and it's communicating to our immune system that there's a threat. But those kind of circuits get worn out. And the resolution never quite comes and it never quite gets switched off. And we get sort of desensitized to it. So we start producing more and more of the stress hormones, but they're not working the same. So stress is a massive thing for our immune system. And we now know that there was a study of it was almost 100,000 people who are recently widowed. And it found that after this bereavement, their mortality, so their risk of dying from any kind of stress-related conditions, so stress can precipitate things like heart attacks and stuff. It's more than double people who hadn't been recently bereaved. So there's more, you know, to this sort of metaphorical broken heart than meets the eye. It's really well established that stress can trigger different gut conditions, The outlook of someone who's been diagnosed with cancer, the stress of the diagnosis and how someone deals with that and is supported with that can really have a lot to do with how their treatment goes and the outcome of that. We know that cortisol, which is one of the stress hormones, which we kind of produce more and more of, but get less sensitive to that actually precipitates what we call in the immune system, a TH2 response, which is what is driving allergy and allergic diseases. So if you have an allergy and you're very stressed, you might be more likely to encounter a flare and feel a lot worse. And also just, you know, healing. So if you have had a surgery or if you've had uh, some cuts, it will take a lot longer to heal when you have these high levels of stress hormones in the blood. So fascinating, isn't so it's, it? It's really interesting, but in some ways, I feel like I'm struggling myself to translate that into, you know, modern life, because it doesn't seem to be getting easier. It seems like modern life is getting harder, you know, and the pressures and the stresses are more, and the way that society is sort of designed is really different. So yeah.
0: And that, especially, especially for mums, you know, where we've got, I certainly felt that long-term stress that you're talking about yeah. increased because I suddenly had double the amount of things to think about I had myself to yeah. think about and this whole other human being who I was now yeah. responsible for so I guess what I'm interested to ask you about is let's say that we can't change the pace of modern life can we unless we all go and yeah. move and as you were describing go and live you know in the highlands on a farm and yeah. <laughs> put, our, put our iPhones away. Most tempted. Yeah, it's very tempted. But, but until we all do that en masse, let's assume we can't change the pace of life. We can't change that a lot of people yeah. are commuting for hours. You know, yeah. we can't change that more families are dual working families now than yes. ever before in history. We can't change that most of us are living away from our extended families than ever before in history. You know, we can't change yeah. social media and the pace of technology what can we change? What can we do to counter this cortisol, as you described, you know, constantly, mm-hmm. constantly in our bodies, which is making us ill?
1: I think it's recognising that stress has this measurable effect on our immune system. So instead of searching for the magic bullet of nutrition that's going to make you feel great and drinking your celery juice or whatever it is, but let's find really very real ways to manage our stress in their day-to-day life. And for one thing that I've found since I went back to work and I was totally daunted by going back to work, I had this overwhelming feeling of being really grateful that someone was prepared to employ me after having children. I don't know why that is. I just totally lost my confidence and I thought I would never go back to science, to immunology, to anything to do with that. I was quite enjoying being a fitness instructor because it worked well with having small children when we lived in Switzerland. But then I moved back to the UK and I would have to retrain to get insured in the UK. And I ended up getting a job quite quickly in immunology that I hadn't really planned for. I felt really grateful to have this job. And that kind of made me change the dialogue of my life because I was thinking, well, if I take this job and I'm excited about it, I know already you know my husband's still going to be commuting and traveling I'm going to be responsible for all the nursery stuff I'm going to do all the juggling I'm going to do all the housework and the laundry and the cooking and the cleaning but I have to give it a positive narrative I'm making this decision to go back to work because of all the other things that feed into that and it seemed like the right thing to do and I've just always really tried to give it a positive narrative so changing the way I talk about things, like instead of focusing on how tired I feel or how the kids are driving me crazy, you know, there's a reason I'm doing this. There's a bigger picture why I'm doing this. And if that bigger picture wasn't there, I wouldn't be back at work. I would be doing something different, I'm sure. You're trying to change the narrative because it can really easily become a negative narrative that you're telling yourself about how everything's busy and stressful and tiring. And yes, well, it is, but you know, either you do something drastic to change that or you find a way to put a positive spin on it. And I guess that's what I try to do. I'm not a natural optimist by any means, but it certainly helped with the transition with going back to work and just, you know, not focusing on the day to day because that is the grind, but trying to look at the bigger picture and the benefits that are brought to the family from me being back at work and that kind of thing and giving yourself a break trying to remember it's what you do most of the time. I've had a kind of on-off relationship with meditation for quite some time. I do feel like it's helpful to just spend 10 minutes without my phone, without work, when the kids are in bed, without talking to anyone and just sort of take a moment before moving on to whatever I'm going to do next. But it's certainly not the easiest of things to do, particularly when you're busy new mom or taking care of baby and juggling everything but I do think there are so many benefits to meditation in terms of mitigating the stresses of life I think it's something people should try and dip their toe into find something that might work for you and also once a week maybe getting something in the calendar where your partner or someone can take care of the kids and you can go and do something that you enjoy so for me I I have a Pilates class that I try and go to, it had to be something close to home and it's around the corner from where I live, it had to be something not too full of energy because I could only go in the evening and I'm not so much an evening person but more a morning person but it's in the diary, I don't make it all the time and sometimes I don't have the energy that I feel to go but I still go because it's having that kind of ritual in the week and a little bit of time for myself.
0: It's such an important point you raise around the narrative that we tell ourselves. Yeah. Um, And I think I'd like to dig into that a bit more. And and I'd love to um, to know if you know of any particular studies or evidence base, because I know intuitively, and you know, a lot of the books that I've read, that how we talk to ourselves impacts our stress.
1: Yes, definitely. I actually have a student who's looking into this at the moment as part of a research project. And she's gathering some evidence around mindfulness and different meditation based techniques, but also bringing into that, like the narratives, like how people talk about, she's mostly looking at people with chronic conditions, how they talk about their condition, whether they let the condition define them or not. And I guess you could extract from that, the sort of martyr mum, where you're telling yourself that narrative and telling the world this narrative of how it's so hard for you blah, 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 because of you know, the lack of sleep or juggling this or juggling that. And it almost starts to define you. And it's easy to get into that situation. And I think finding pause and stepping back and thinking, you know, I want this. I want to be a mother. It's not easy, but let's find a positive spin on it. But yeah, there's so many studies that have been done looking at this narrative that we tell ourselves and... Mm. The studies that are done around this kind of work are never huge. They're never the, you know, the huge clinical trials. And there's a lot of subjectivity in it. So people tend to be quite critical of it. Yeah. But sometimes despite being a scientist guided by the evidence, sometimes I feel like at the same time, we don't always need evidence. Sometimes it's just a case of intuition. And we sort of need gentle nudges to remind ourselves of that, you know.
0: Yeah. And this is, what I, think, I think, you know, something that I've done every day for a, a long time and I, mm-hmm. and I encourage my coaching clients to do is, is a really simple practice of just writing down five things every day you're grateful for. And I think yes. it sounds so simple. It's almost eye-rollingly simple. And I've had some yes. clients say to me, are you kidding me? I am in crisis. I'm stressed. You know, I'm not coping. Yeah. I'm anxious. And you're telling me to write down things I'm grateful for. And then by the end of having done that, with the time they've worked with me, which is three months, mm-hmm. they cannot believe how that really simple tool just starts to change everything in their life and it's almost like it does sound so simple but I found it to be true that it can change which is what I think you're talking about that lens that we put on things and this isn't to Mm -hmm. whitewash with positivity but I think it's recognizing that we do have a choice at the narrative we tell ourselves and yes and what we say to ourselves and how we view the world impacts how our bodies function which is the mind-body link and I am
1: so Mm -hmm. passionate
0: about reading about that and understanding it and but I think just starting with some of those really simple tools have you got any other simple tools like that that you can recommend that you've seen work or you use in your own life I think
1: it's Probably the area that I struggle with the most, (laughs) if I'm honest with you. It's always something that's been my Achilles heel. I am a kind of default stress head. And over the years, just developing an awareness of that, like recognizing this is something that I personally struggle with. I could improve my life if I tune into this a little bit more and face it head on. Somehow we have this reluctance to embrace the things that we find more challenging So I think that's been lurking in the back of my mind all the time and just knowing that when I change my mindset, it can change my week. I can have a good week where I have the right mindset, the right outlook. I switch the dialogue. I get to Friday and I'm feeling energized instead of like limping to the finish line. As much as that's my own anecdote, I, I really think that there's something in it. But definitely, that's the one that I struggle with the most. I would say. So
0: I'm really interested then. So we've been talking about you know the power of mindset, and yet it's not one of your pillars. Well, well I guess it falls
1: under stress. Because you doesn't put it, it under stress. Yeah. Okay.
0: okay. Fascinating. So, and the last one <laughs> is nutrition.
1: Yes. So nutrition is sort of the go-to when people think about their physical health. I think for some reason, we're all like searching for this magic bullet that's going to make us feel really good. We just eat this. Or part of it's, you know, a bit of a placebo effect. You know, if you're investing in some expensive supplements, you're going to want to feel that it's doing something. Yeah, The placebo effect is really real. You know, yeah. it's very well documented. So I think you know, nutrition is, is these days, it's kind of a muddy field. But what I'd say in terms of nutrition and the immune system, it's not maybe what you might think. So my kind of key points for what is going to work best for your immune system and help it work at its best fall into sort of three categories, I'd say. So the first is fibre, which is perhaps not something people would immediately think about. No, In terms of immunity. But fiber, it does so much and it's all linked in with our microbiome. So, the first thing to say is that, you know, our immune system is something that's made, it's not something that we're born with. So, we're born with a very immature immune system and it kind of grows up with our microbiome. So, we're born pretty sterile. We might have a few microorganisms living on us and in us, but we're pretty sterile. And the minute we come out, of our mother's womb, we're in this huge microbial world and we start to be colonized by the bugs around us. And a huge number of studies clearly demonstrate that how we're colonized by these gut bugs can really educate our immune system. And it starts from the day that we leave our mother's womb, maybe even before. So the first years of our life is really critical. The microbiome, these bugs that live on us and in us, they're educating our immune system
0: do you mind if I just ask you a no, question? No, here? That's right. is this playing into the whole should we sterilise everything and be following our babies around with detol? Or should we be allowing them to does this feed into that debate and what's your view on that?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I know that as a parent sometimes it feels like we need to be like walking around with hand sanitizer. <laughs> clipped to our belt or something. I've seen that, true story. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, when you look at the evidence, it's been shown that the provision of hand sanitizers doesn't actually affect how many respiratory infections or gut infections that kids pick up. In fact, there's actually more risks of adverse effects from kids ingesting the hand sanitizers, which are covering... You know, everything in their environment. Really? Um, so we should stop using them? I would say that unless you have a specific reason that you've been advised by the doctor to use one, I would certainly not use one. I think hand washing. So in terms of the risk of infection, basic sanitation has a huge role to play. So one of the key ways to not get sick is wash your hands properly, especially in public places and dispose of your tissues and all those kind of things. So that has a real huge place in preventing us from getting sick. And obviously kids put things in their mouth and they're in close contact with other children at at daycares and things. So germs are going to naturally have a field day in those environments, but there's no benefit from using hand sanitizer. It's better to get people to wash their hands properly. And the antibacterials in hand sanitizer are not discriminating the bad bacteria from the good. Ah. So it's kind of, should we continue using things like hand sanitizer? It's a tough call, really, because obviously, you know, if you're in a situation and your child picks up something and you think it could be dog poo on there or whatever, yes, it could be quite useful. But otherwise, basic hand washing is probably the best because that's not going to have other sort of downstream effects on the
0: fascinating thank you for answering that one (coughs) we were talking about how our immune systems we aren't born with them they grow and develop and the microbiome and fiber playing into that
1: yeah so the microbiome a lot of people might be familiar with these are the bugs that live on us and in us obviously the biggest population of the microbiome is in our gut yeah and they eat what we eat so They like to ferment fibres that are found in plant-based foods, fruits, vegetables, legumes, all these different things that have a sort of fibre component. So all the the carbs basically in our diet. So if you think about what you're eating, you're essentially feeding your microbiome. It was kind of interesting because when people were looking at breast milk and studying what's inside breast milk, they found that it contained these particular sugars, which is a short piece of fibre, And they couldn't really understand what the purpose of this was in the milk because the baby didn't seem to need it from a nutritional standpoint. But they found that this short fiber that was found in the breast milk was literally just a way to nurture the growth of the microbiome. Wow. So its sole purpose was to really pull out the good bacteria and feed them exactly what they want to eat. And they could break this down. Does Um, formula have that as well? I don't think they can recreate it in formula. I think formula, when they say it's nutritionally equivalent, it would have the same proteins, fats, and all the vitamins and things that you would find in breast milk, but they can't recreate that exactly. Interesting. Interesting. And they do find that the microbiome of breastfed versus non breastfed children is different. They've shown that this is associated with downstream health issues like allergies, but we don't exactly know the mechanism yet to say that if you're not breastfed, that does not mean that you're definitely going to go on and, you know, develop certain conditions because all of these conditions are normally multifactorial. So there's a lot of different things playing into them.
0: And everyone, as you said, everyone's genetic makeup is different. Yeah, exactly. Right at the the start. Yeah. So we need to be eating a diet with plant-based fibre to feed our yeah, healthy gut which is feeding into our immune system. Exactly
1: okay. so if you think about whenever you're eating a meal you're actually just feeding your microbiome and think about what they might like to eat because they do a lot of things for us like we have quite basic digestion we can sort of break down all the macronutrients proteins fats carbohydrates we can absorb some vitamins and stuff but the microbiome is really responsible for liberating a lot of the nutrients from our food, and doing some of the digestion for us. So really your, your digestion is only kind of as good as your microbiome.
0: Fascinating. And it's the microbiome that support in the production of serotonin as well, isn't it? Which, yes, exactly. Which of course is our happy hormone, which is why a yeah. lot of people say, you know, happiness starts in the gut. And, yes, and, and yeah. there's loads of fascinating studies that I've been reading about depression and nutrition. We won't get into that now. Yeah. No, that's exactly. that's down a whole big wormhole. <laughs> that's another rabbit hole, yeah. Yeah, um, we definitely need to follow-up one or we'll just geek out over coffee at some point. So what's the second pillar? So we're talking about fibre is the first pillar to think about in nutrition. Yep. What's your so, second pillar?
1: Second pillar is phytonutrients. <laughs> sometimes called phytochemicals people might be more familiar with them called polyphenols so these are a subset of phytonutrients they're basically a plant's immune system so they're molecules that plants produce to defend them from predators because plants can't run away when bugs come crawling along wanting to eat them so they produce these chemicals known as phytochemicals or phytonutrients that are a bit kind of uncomfortable for the bugs so they don't want to eat them so it's a way that plants protect themselves. And this is plant-based? Not just plants. Yeah, obviously fruits and vegetables, but also herbs and spices, some legumes. But also you find it in things like salmon. So astaxanthin is one that's found. So it's not just plant food, but mostly in plant-based products. Also resveratrol in red wine and some of the polyphenols in chocolate. You know, you see these headlines in the news that red wine and chocolate are good for you. Yeah is because they contain a lot of these phytonutrients and they do many things in the body. To give you an example, there's probably around over maybe eight to 10,000 phytonutrients that have been discovered and we're only kind of at the tip of the iceberg and unpicking what exactly they do. Wow. Some examples would be curcumin and turmeric. So this is something that gets a lot of... press um, at the moment, yeah. yeah, so there are many of them and they're not just one thing. And they kind of work together. Some of them are directly antibacterial or antiviral. So things like allicin, which is found in garlic, this is antibacterial, antiviral. So it's gonna help your natural defenses against infection.
0: And that's an old wives' so, tale, isn't it? Garlic when you've got a cold. Yes,
1: exactly, yeah, for a long time, it's been considered sort of a natural medicinal food. So they're, they're doing many things. They're naturally sort of helping resist infections. They help sometimes make the barriers of our gut, of our lungs more strong and resist infection. But they also actually tap the brakes on the inflammation that we get when we're sick. So inflammation is the thing that makes us feel really unwell. And it can take the edge off that, it can turn the dial down a little bit.
0: Can I just ask you, while we're in this section, something that I'd love to get your view on is the trend. I don't know whether that's the right word. The concept that switching to an entirely plant-based diet can switch on and off autoimmune diseases and lots of accounts of people recovering from really severe illnesses and diseases from switching to an entirely plant-based diet Love to hear your take on
1: that. That's an interesting one because, yeah, like you say, there's a lot of anecdotes. Actually, to counter that, I've actually heard a lot of people talk about the carnivore diet completely reversing various kinds of autoimmune diseases, which is like the opposite of going plant-based. To me, it seems that there could be many things. So switching to a plant-based diet is going to give you a lot more fibre probably than you were perhaps eating before because you're removing some of the foods that don't have fibre, so meat, fish, eggs, cheese, and you're replacing them with plant sources which naturally intrinsically have more fibre. Fibre produces a lot of anti-inflammatory components, things like short-chain fatty acids, which help to Tighten up the gut, prevent leaky gut, which is known to exacerbate autoimmune conditions.
0: Yeah, we had and a podcast where we talked a lot about leaky gut. So,
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So I guess if listeners want to listen yeah, to that one and, and that. link yeah. it together. And again, it causes our microbiome to digest the fiber. They produce what's known as postbiotics. So we've heard of prebiotics, probiotics. Postbiotics are actually what the microbiome produce when they digest fibre in our diet. So it's kind of like our own personalised pharmacy. They're just the metabolic byproducts of the bacteria eating our food. But there's thousands of these postbiotics. They're being released into the bloodstream and they have all sorts of effects in the body many of them are anti-inflammatory or antioxidant they also can have effects on the brain things like that are maybe going to make you feel a lot better mm,
0: that was my experience I did switch to an entirely plant-based diet oh. for about three months and I've never felt better
1: wow that's I didn't interesting didn't
0: maintain it interestingly I slowly added in fish and you know some dairy products it was the energy it was wow. unbelievable the energy that I Felt from that diet. So, what's your general advice then on this? On point two, on the photo i can't remember what you called them. Sorry, oh,
1: phytonutrients.
0: Phytonutrients. Is it—is it, <coughs> is it to, to eat more plants in our diet to support our immune system?
1: Yes. Yeah. So, phytonutrients and fibre tend to be found in the same foods, and it's about getting the diversity into your diet, really. It's, it's not like there's, you know, one type of fiber and one phytonutrient that's going to revolutionize your health. But if you think about the ecosystem of bugs in your digestive system, there are so many different varieties. And you want to nurture that diversity in the bugs that live in your gut, mm. because the more diverse they are, seems to correspond to better long-term health
0: fascinating and on your website there's a really good nutrition section isn't there so if anyone's interested in getting some recipe ideas or how to bring more of this in a really accessible way I'll link your website so people go and have a look and what was the third pillar sorry you said there were three pillars to your approach to nutrition for immunity
1: yeah so the third one is fats okay Fats are, again, going back to this idea of gently sort of tapping the brakes on the immune system. So promoting a more resolving and regulating side of the immune system. I think that fats play a real key role in this. So there's the essential fats, which are the omega-3s and the omega-6s. And they both feed into different pathways in the immune system. One is to make pro-inflammatory responses, which is really important when we're fighting infections. And the other one is to make more anti-inflammatory responses and resolve inflammation. So the omega-3s are the more pro-resolving anti-inflammatory and the omega 6 are the more pro-inflammatory. So we need both. They're both essential. But the problem is we just find different, ratios in our diet today and we tend to eat less of the omega-3 variety and unless you're eating a lot of oily fish, oily fish it's yeah. hard to come across so most of us if you have a pretty good diet you probably don't need an omega-3 supplement but it's probably the one thing that I would tried to take on a regular basis. I think it's also worth keeping in check the amount of omega-6s that you eat as well. So they've tried to really do studies where they look at the amount of omega-6 to omega-3 in their ratio, but it's really complicated to do any kind of diet studies because food is ultimately the sum of everything you eat. And when you eat one nutrient, you're also eating others that are in that food stuff. So it's been quite tricky to tease out. But when you look at the molecular pathway of what's happening, if you have a lot more omega-6, the pro-inflammatory ones, it will block off any omega-3s. So if you have any underlying inflammatory disease, you're already probably fueling that fire if you have a higher ratio of omega-6 in your and diet.
0: What, what type of foods were omega-6? So omega-6 are a lot of the vegetable oils,
1: Which, if you look in processed foods, they are just really ubiquitous. Like the healthier, sometimes considered a healthier oil because they're not saturated fats. But even things like sunflower oil, anything that's deep fried, a lot of even baked products now, they're just full of vegetable oil, which will be quite omega-6. And I do find actually with kids' products, because my children were born in Switzerland and there wasn't the same huge market of kids' food Products that there are now. And I found it quite strange when I moved to the UK, and there's entire aisles of the supermarket dedicated to baby food products. It's like everything's marketed to babies. And we're kind of indoctrinating our kids to eating crisps. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Like, no food is bad, but they've not got very much nutrition and they're just like puffs of rice or wheat or whatever soaked in omega 6 oil. It's
0: kind of like. That's my approach to nutrition now, because I mean, I yeah. I just read so much, you know, I think I could have gone down that path of being a nutritionist or it's something because I got so into it. Yeah, I think I almost got too much knowledge in a way. I mean, nothing like yours, but I definitely got a bit confused. And so now I have this philosophy, which is I tend to look at my plate and just think, What's the nutritional value? So with a crisp, I'll think, well, I'll, I'll enjoy this, but I know that there's zero nutritional value for me, really. Yeah. And that's what I tend to think about with Jessie as well, which is just, what am I giving her that's got some density of nutrition in it?
1: Yeah, that's yeah. Quite, that's
0: simplified the whole thing for me. So it's, I was pleased, <coughs> really, really pleased to hear you mirror that back and say that too. We've covered so much. We've really talked about how you know, our immunity as a system and these four pillars that you've talked about so brilliantly and in such depth, you know, around movement, stress, nutrition, and rest. What would you say if someone's listening and, you know, they've got those four pillars, what would be a next step for someone who might be feeling like they're ill too much of the time, they want to change this, maybe to close before we do the final, final question, just quickly, one or two things that someone, you know, when they turn off this podcast, what could they go into?
1: The one thing I just really want any mums who are listening to really take on board is that stop searching for the magic bullet and just focus on what you do most of the time. It's not what you do all of the time, you know, just really cultivate a good relationship with yourself, a good relationship with foods, because ultimately the best diet for you is going to be the one where you have a really good relationship with foods and that's going to make everything less stressful you know it's going to filter down to all those other things and yeah it's always good to remind yourself don't try and be perfect all of the time you know just look at the bigger picture what you're doing most of the time just keep chipping away and there'll be setbacks and there'll be weeks of no sleep and times when you know life throws you a curveball and ultimately sometimes I find this myself it's easy to think that things can't wait but you know sometimes they can wait. And you just have to take that little step back from all the messages that the world is trying to throw to us about, you know, how everything has to happen now. And
0: It's a great message. It's a great message, creating space and yeah. time. I th- actually think giving ourselves time is, yeah. is no bigger gift.
1: It's funny when I uh, mentioned I had a real crisis of confidence after having my kids and I thought I could never go back to work. And people said to me, you know, this time that you have where you're not working and you're just at home being a mum, this is so valuable and it will give you time to sort of unravel what you're doing with your life. And when I look back, it was kind of true. As much as I, you know, was just in the fog of being a new mum, it definitely made me go forward with a clear idea of what I would and wouldn't do what I wouldn't wouldn't compromise on whereas before kids I would probably have done jobs that I didn't like just because I thought I had to whereas now it's very much like giving me focus Mm. Mm.
0: well I'm really pleased that you came back because I think you're sharing amazing knowledge in yes. a really accessible <laughs> way so thank you and the final no question which I ask everyone is if you could give just one gift to all the mums in the world what would it be and why
1: oh I would say as I said my twins are born in Switzerland and I feel like I had a really different experience to a lot of my mum friends in the UK and in Switzerland it's a bit like Britain but you know, 50 years ago. And it was a lot less confusing. And really, the one thing that the midwives and everyone I spoke to taught me was that I'm the mum and I should use my intuition. And even as a scientist and that, you know, working with evidence, sometimes we don't need evidence. Sometimes we need to be able to tune into our intuition And I think that's something that we've lost. When I moved back to the UK, I I felt totally confused because there was so many rules and messages about what I should and shouldn't do as a mum at different ages and different times. And I didn't have that in the first couple of years in Switzerland because it was really intuitive. And I think that I would say to mums everywhere, you know, be intuitive and stay strong and focused on that because as a mum, you know best at a certain level, even if you can't articulate what that is go with your guts there's definitely something in that
0: mm, what a beautiful message and that's <laughs> you know that's a big part of what i'm trying to do with Motherkind. so yeah thank uh, you for sharing that and thank you so much for coming on i mean no, I, I think no. i probably could have talked to you another five hours
1: yeah and... <laughs> I so i'm kind of losing my voice i've got this really horrible cough today but yeah we could have went on <laughs> well
0: thank you so much <clears throat> and i will see you soon no doubt
1: yes definitely
0: thanks take for care that. thanks So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends, I'd be very grateful. And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also, just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my programme, which is a three-month programme called Reconnect To You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.